I've just finished recording one of the most extraordinary conversations I've had yet for the podcast. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy this. It is my huge pleasure to say that today I was joined by award-winning poet, professor of English at Williams College and author of The Circuit, A Tennis Odyssey, Rowan Ricardo Phillips. Details of where to find that book are in the show notes. We talked about the ethics of tennis's return, how the sport's fractured pieces might someday align and what happens when the tours stop chasing the sun. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to talk because obviously loved your book and as a massive tennis fan myself, I mean, I was just... It was a must to get you on, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> well, it's really, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And I'm glad you like the book. I just want to know how you're doing. You know, these are crazy sure. times. And I hope that you and yours are, are well and, and, and safe. The thing's even more important than tennis. And, you know, your wellness and the wellness of your loved ones is, uh, you know, my priority in this conversation. So, you know, I hope you're doing well. And Thanks, Rowan. Yeah, that's really, that's really nice of you. Yeah, yeah, we're all, we're all well here. I... As I said to you in my original email, I basically graduated this summer and I've been doing a bit of freelancing since and I'm, I'm living at home at the moment with my family and stuff and we're all well, we're all good. Well, what about yourself? I'm glad to hear it. Um, you know, same, adjusting to distance, just about everything, you know, distance uh, teaching and all of that. But um, uh, we left New York City in early mid-March, mid-March, and we've been in the Berkshires. The Berkshires of Massachusetts, not your Berkshires. Uh, <laughs> um, I've had to clarify that a few times. And, you know, enjoying nature and keeping an eye on things and um, finding myself really grateful, I have to say, um, that the book has found readers like you because I think that what's happening now and how we can contextualize tennis in that is part of the spirit of the, of the circuit. And, and sort of the question that, that I had, you know, I, I think you could tell, I, I like thinking about things in a stroke to stroke basis and down to grip and string tension and everything like that. Um, but I don't really believe that tennis operates um, or is best thought of operating in a uh, impenetrable bubble because the world um, looms right, right on the surface of, of that boundary. And it is seeped in, I guess, kind of whole cloth and, here we are, right? So if anything, I think that the book um, has more resonance, but the seeds of where we're at with tennis, and I don't mean just the pandemic, but I do certainly mean a part of the pandemic. Um, the seeds of that are in that season, which is not a season that we're going to see um, again, I think. so. Yeah, I mean, it's ironic, isn't it, now that tennis has literally been confined to a ball, I guess, wasn't it? But right. but right. it is, like you say, in the most powerful ways, it's been touched by the outside world now and transformed in, in ways that we would never have anticipated. I can't ask you about what you feel about like watching it, this kind of new iteration of tennis. Well, you know what, Finn, I have not watched a point. Really? Yeah, really? I've, I've, needed, I've needed a bit of a break. And, you know, it's happened with some... It took me a while to start watching sports again um, at all. You know, I started watching the football eventually after a few weeks. Um, I haven't watched um, any of the basketball that's been going on. 
Um, and yeah, tennis, I guess I'm not ready for, especially, you know, especially what happened with the, um, you know, Adria tour and all of that. And, um, so many players missing and the crowd not being there. I do miss it. Uh, and I've gone on the court myself, which has been, um, really useful, I guess, to the spirit and the soul, but, um, you know, my mind's not really ready to wrap around, I don't know, a Masters in New York, you know, at the U.S. Open grounds, followed by a U.S. Open with um, a really thinned out field. And um, I will catch on eventually, but, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready. And I'm neither ashamed of that, nor do I feel any need to feel otherwise. I mean, sports is, look at tennis. I think tennis is a great example of a sport where sometimes you need a break. And it's not just the, the players, but the participants. Ash Bartley took a prolonged break to go find rugby and came back to it. Um, and I think that, um, you know, with players, but also I think with spectators, it can be healthy to have that type of break and, and do what players do, both professional and amateur players, which is reset. So right now, I guess I'm resetting I've watched the results. I've caught the results, obviously, but I, I just, um, there are, I don't know, I guess there are ways of looking at the game that I'm not ready to kind of look at yet in the context that it's being offered up. And also the reasons why it's being offered up. I have to, um, I have a lot of admiration, a tremendous amount of admiration for Wimbledon um, for not only having had their tournament insured against the pandemic, but then also distributing funds in the way that they have. And, you know, anyone who loves tennis, I would imagine would miss a year of Wimbledon, but, um, for their preparedness and for their thoughtfulness, I'm heartened by that. And, and I, I think more of that in the absence of Wimbledon than I think of playing tennis in a bubble in the midst of a pandemic. So we all have different ways of loving the game and the sport. And I guess that's where I'm at with it right now. But I'm, I'm doing really well. And I'm, I'm really happy to be on this uh, podcast talking with you, Finn. I mean, your love of the game, um, you know, and your your sense of it, both as a reader and an enthusiast were really clear to me when you reached out. And I thought, you know, this is something that I really uh, would love to do. And, and I'm happy that uh, someone in the UK has gotten their hands on the book. I hope that it um, finds a UK publisher and one on the continent at some point so that um, it could be in the hands of more um, readers in the UK, because I think that it has um, a type of spirit and obviously a content that would be uh, really tantalizing to readers like yourself over there. Yeah, I'm sure of that. I really am sure of that. Um, and you are actually, you're releasing your book of poems your recent book of poems in the uk soon i understand living weapon right oh that's right uh living weapon which was published by ferrar strauss and Giroux, um here in the states in february 2020 it's going to be um published by faber in january of 2021 and they're excited and i'm um really excited you know i have a i have a lot of love for that book and um you know i, I think that it's an important book for people to get their hands on and um, I already know that, you know, the good folks at Favor are doing a great job with it and taking great care of it. And I'm looking forward to January and beyond when it's um, when it's a Favor book and out in the UK. Great, great. Well, I wanted to ask you first, just um, particularly because the circuit is a book where tennis kind of becomes one with the passage of time, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, and it's kind of 
it's about the eddies and currents of the year. But of course, tennis and much of the world stops this March. What have your feelings been? We've touched on them a bit already, but what have your, what have your feelings been since tennis's return? Well, you know, my feelings on it have been too... Um, I don't know, has it returned? I mean, a, fo- a form of tennis has returned, right? I mean, you know, um, often when things leave us and they come back, they come back uh, changed in one way or another. Um, and, you know, the, the field, both on the men's and women's tours, um, not full and, you know, the stands obviously are anything but full and, and the conditions are, um, unusual so i'm i'm glad that tennis is happening because i know that there's a um there's an ecosystem um that i think is not apparent to the casual viewer but clearly there's an ecosystem by which um you know tennis has to maintain or the tour i should say must contain and maintain a kinetic energy for um it to function and by that i mean you know players who would be normally um in the qualities players under the rank of 100, you know, the, the, the players that, that create stories aside from kind of the, the battles between the top 10, top 25 players. Um, and so it's good in that, you know, Louisa Thomas, who I dedicated the circus to, circuit to, excuse me, I'm still putting down my morning cup of tea. Um, but Louisa Thomas, who I, I dedicated the circuit to, has written a, a fabulous article in the New Yorker recently on tennis and the pandemic, and I'd recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it, but it really lays out the, the nature of um, what tennis, what the tour can be like and the, the problems facing it during the pandemic, and I stand by every word of that. Um, but for me, it's been strange. I, I have not been watching as we were just talking about. I've been keeping my eye on results, but... Um, you know, let me be clear, Finn, it's not, well, oh, this isn't the tennis that I know. It's not, you know, I, I don't want to sound like an old man yelling at a cloud, but just um, like many players on the tour, I've found myself opting out. Yeah. Well, I found it quite interesting when I was listening to Louisa talk the other day on a tennis podcast about her own feelings about sport coming back. She felt like there shouldn't really be any sport happening right now. And I feel like in the UK, certainly there's been a bit of a, numbing to that idea because the Premier League's been back for so long we've kind of just accepted the sports back and accepted this idea that it's a kind of solace or as you say in the circuit of tennis a momentary stay against confusion to use Robert Frost's quote about poetry do you think well I guess part of the spirit of the circuit is that tennis is really a part of the confusion of the world isn't it well, absolutely. You know, it was um, one of these things where, I, um, you know, the, the spirit of the book really thinks about um, the passage of time. You put it so well, but, but you know, um, teleological, chronological time, you know, tennis is one of the few sports that starts um, in the wee days of January, January 1st or January 2nd, depending on if you have your eyes on the qualifiers or not. And it takes you through to um, late November. So it's one of these few seasons when you think about, um, you know, football or any other number of sports. We think about seasons and sometimes we say year as a euphemism, but it's really something that is um, self-contained by its by its own self, by its um, ontology, not by the calendar. But tennis certainly is something that follows the calendar 
and in that way it follows the seasons, um, which is part of the reason why the book is uh, a quartet. It's separated by the seasons. Um, but it becomes something where, you know, tennis, when you think about the way that the um, surfaces change, when you think about the way in which if you tune in to, you know, particularly American players at the start of the year and everything's hardcore and they're in English speaking countries. So Australia is on the other side of the world, but a bit more familiar than say, you know, Morocco or Rome. Um, and then you see Australia and they're doing quite well and the rankings are quite well. But then when you check in on the back end of the clay court season, um, and those players sometimes aren't anywhere to be found or all of a sudden you're being introduced to new players, um, who are thriving on clay and then the transition to grass. It's really a, um, story of the undulation of, uh, of time, resilience, endurance, and players' fortunes. Uh, and in that way, you know, my great friend Teju Cole, when he um, hosted a conversation about the book um, when, it, when it launched, he put it really well. He said, Rowan, you're quite cheeky. You call this a tennis odyssey, but it's much more the Iliad. Right? <laughs> because, you know, it's, 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 it's um, encompassing this period of time where, um, you know, fame and fortune undulates and many people are laid in the waste. There, there are many um, casualties and a lot of collateral damage in this story that is in part about uh, heroism and in part about the failings both of individuals and, um, and large-scale systems. I mean, it's relevant right now, isn't it? It's been really relevant in the last few months. There's been a lot of individual actors in the tennis world who've kind of taken it upon themselves to, I don't know, whether it's Serena's coach to create a tournament in Marseille or, I mean, Louise, Louisa documents this really well in that, in that piece that you mentioned before, The Fractured World of Tennis, where there's been so many pop-up tournaments and so many actors just all acting in their own interests, I guess, in a way. Has your faith... In this, and I'm not sure if that's the right word, your faith in the sport being shaken by the way some of the protagonists have behaved during the, the past few months. And I'm not just referring to players by that. Sure. Um, no, I, 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 can't say, I can't say that it has um, um, for two reasons. One, I, you know, I only have so much faith in, um, um, in professionals who, whom I know as professionals, right? I mean, there's a way in which um, what's an incredible skill that tennis players have is that they, um, you know, they're able to, I guess, traipse over this boundary of spectator and professional in a way that leads people to be rabid fans of um, Simona Halep or Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal or Novak Djokovic um, or Serena Williams. Um, but we're, you know, we're watching professionals and they're always when we're interacting with them um, in a professional mode, because that's why we know them. Um, I think one can only put so much faith in someone that you know, more or less through that type of um, prism and matrix. Um, but also, I have to say the other reason is, uh, and I think, again, you know, Louisa, you know, Louisa Thomas is, you know, as good a writer and thinker on the sport as there is. Um, which is why I dedicated the book to her. Um, but she put it really well at the beginning of that article when she's um, talking with um, um, Danny Valdu, and he says, you know, tennis players are inherently selfish. 
Um, and he didn't mean that in a um, deleterious sense, but it just, it is what it is that tennis players in order to survive, um, in order to thrive and how they train and the choices that they make uh, or are first made for them because they begin so young that they are um, selfish. And so you find that in the comments of Dominic Thiem, um, you find that in the comments of Novak uh, Djokovic, you find that in the um, actions of many players. It's inherently a selfish sport. Um, it's set up that way. It's, um, again, I, and it divests itself that way. Um, so I'm not, I'm not surprised. You know, the elephant in the room in um, Luisa's piece also was that, you know, so many of the players that she was talking about um, live in Switzerland, right? I mean, it's just part of the, part of what you do when you, when you become a high paying tennis player is you find ways to maintain your money from, you know, from the hands that, that will take it and put it towards uh, government taxes. Hence, so many players, when you watch at the beginning of a match, whether you're watching, you know, a, you know, the ATP tour or whatever, or your sport or whatever, and you see places of residence and they, they're either in Switzerland or in Monaco. Well, or the Bahamas as well. That's another one. Oh, yes, yes. Well, well yeah, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I'm not surprised because um, it's a, it's a, it's a sport that, um, feeds off, or at least it has this meth, you know, mythos of feeding off of um, selfishness. And I, I, I've never been, um, I guess I've never thought of it um, in any way other than that. You, you, you love to see acts of kindness, but you also understand the context of them. So hence, I don't know if you saw that, um, you, know, you know, those girls who were playing tennis on the rooftops in Italy and then Federer came and visited them and saw that clip, yeah. right? You know, what you buy, Baria. Right. And so it becomes yeah, this thing yeah, where and yeah. Federer is so smooth at this. Right. But, you know, it's this wonderful thing where, you know, Federer's is um, meeting these two um, young Italian girls and playing with them on the rooftop. But also the sponsors mentioned maybe 70 times, it is, it is, <laughs> uh, which is him also being a professional. Right. Um, and then also when you first mentioned the acts of players and what they're doing, of course, at the end of that bit where they play tennis and then, you know, they have some pasta and then he surprises them by saying that they get to go to Rafa's Academy. Um, so, and you know, that is not an act of selfishness by any means, but you know, there, there are just ways in which tennis players, they move in their circles and, and they do what feels right to them, um, within the power that they have. I'm not sure that that's much different from in the minute when a ball is coming towards them and it's in their swing zone that they have to make a decision. And uh, the, the calculations of those decisions, um, do I end this now? Do I survive in this point and kind of reset? I think that it's, it's all kind of allegorically what you're seeing now. I mean, tennis players with few um, exceptions, uh, you know, um, Andrea Petkovic, I think being one of them, Serena and Venus being, you know, another, but, you know, tennis players live within, I think that, they're always playing a match. Yeah. If you will. Right. And I'm really amazed by players who seem to um, uh, not be in the midst of that, um, as it appears to me. Curios, I think, being another, for better or for worse, is not always playing <laughs> a match. You know, but that also seeps into him on, on the court. Sometimes he's literally not playing. <laughs> you, know? you know, we like to say, I don't know if you say it as much in the UK, but I'm not playing. 
right? It's kind of, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and yeah, I think he's an example <laughs> of that, um, you know, with the, with the volume turned up to 11, if I could drop a spinal tap. <laughs> yeah, he really does take it to the nth degree, I guess. So I, he, uh, I, yeah, I find it interesting what you're saying there about Federer being, yeah, being the professional by being the gentleman. Because something I've been learning a bit from doing a few podcasts recently on more on the history of tennis, figures like Alice Marble. Um, and before that, I was speaking to an author who'd just written a book called The People's History of Tennis. Mm-hmm. And both of those interviews were revolving around this idea of the amateur that tennis used to preside on only up until 1968. And this... And how that's actually kind of stayed, particularly with somebody like Federer. He has this kind of aura of just being a gentleman, being like the gentleman amateur from the 30s or whatever, but it's just been commercialized. That's the only difference. It's been kind of packaged for sale, like you say, with that with that advert. I, I just wanted to ask as well, something that struck my mind was your article for the New York Times at the end of 2018 that you wrote about the kind of the back end of the tennis season. Uh being the kind of forgotten part of the season and being kind of becoming a bit of a entrepreneurial wild west in a way with the Labour Cup and the uh, ill-fated Majesty Cup idea as well. I wonder what you what you thought about the the whole reshuffling of the schedule as well on, on a kind of logistical level when uh, when it was becoming clear that Covid was going to delay the French Open, for example. Well, fascinating. No, I mean, this is where I think um you know, the receipts are being shown for all, for all of that kind of um, entrepreneurial entropy, if you will. Um, and, you know, that's always um, the case. You know, Yates, things fall apart, the center will not hold. Um, and there's a way in which when you're speculating to that degree, and, and, you know, I certainly think that the back end of the tour after the US Open is certainly a type of spec- speculation. Um, you know, it doesn't take it doesn't take a hard push to have everything um, shake into its foundations. Um, I wish that there were other reasons why this was the the case, right? I think that uh, so. For instance, you know, the women's tour, um, you know, becomes such a such a um, you know the direction that it goes after the after the U.S. Open. Um, how can I put this? It's um, it settles on the the Asian continent, and it kind of doesn't, doesn't really seep into the American fans' conscience. Kind of after that. Well, well, yeah, and I, you know, I think that there's nothing. I guess I'm kind of pausing because I'm not saying that that's the the that's certainly not the fault of those locations. As yeah, I say, yeah. in the circuit, one of the wonderful things about tennis um, is it's. Um, Globalism, though, of course, we still have to think about the fact that there are hardly any tours um, on the African continent. I mean, there's just one on the ATP tour, um, and that's a big part of the globe. Um, but I, I, you know, I just mean that there's there's a way in which um, there's a way in which the, the casual fan, I think, it's pretty clear. I don't know if you get this sense in the UK as well, but in the US, I mean, for the casual fan after the US Open, that's all. That's all that she wrote, you know, the, the final Grand Slam, the end of the story. I would imagine that's not the case in the UK, of course, because you also still have the finals tour in London, mm, right? Mm. So you have this sense of like, tennis is coming home, if you will. Um, 
but I, I do think that it's a it's a really missed opportunity. It's a it's a missed opportunity. I don't know if Louisa mentioned this when you spoke to her, um, but she's been a um, a vocal uh, proponent of having the U.S. Open be um, an indoor tournament, um, and so that way you have a true diversity of um, of surfaces for the slams. Australian Open would be hard. French obviously would be clay, Wimbledon brass, and then an indoor tournament, which would also then kind of like leave a little bit of a contact high and um, ligature, if you will, for the indoor tournaments that are coming um, down the road. You know, I've got to be honest, Finn. I, I think that it's, it's a cyclical thing. It's not just that the back end of the tour could use um, reshuffling, but I also think even the front end of the tour could use a bit of reshuffling. To be honest, it, it's, um, I'm not terribly convinced that having kind of the Sunshine Tour and having everything in Australia, everything being grouped together in that way, kind of diversifies the tour to the extent that would be really interesting to me. I understand it's not practical to go to switch surfaces as much um, as, as tournament to tournament, but I, I do think that if you do follow the tour over the year, you will notice this kind of like um, wax and wane of players because of kind of surfaces and environments. And I think that that's part of the reason why um, for kind of general spectators, they know a small number of players because there are only so many players who can actually hold their own throughout the calendar year on the change of surfaces, despite the fact that I know that um, the surfaces have become more homogenous despite their texture and how they look. Um, but I think that if, if, um, you didn't have, you know, random actors, you know, like the French Federation just moving uh, the French Open went to when they wanted. If, if we were able to kind of like have everyone at the table and really think about um, the well-being of the players, a type of um, uh, synchronicity between the men's tour and the women's tour and actually asking once again, OK, well, how do we really want the sun to rise and set? over the year of this tournament that we'd have something um, <clears throat> uh, beautiful. I guess I found myself thinking about Yates a lot this morning. I don't know. We have some terrible beauty being born. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a need for a lot of shakeups in tennis, you know, conflict of interests um, that are behind the scenes in tennis, conflict of interest in um, commentators and kind of like agent relationships and all these types of things that um, we don't see but certainly affect when players play at the, you know, the time of day that they play, the, the day that they play. I'm hoping, as is the case for me, um, that the terrible situations that we're living through with this pandemic offers us chances to um, think of the possibility of change and improvement. And tennis is a wonderful sport uh, and the tour has done, um, has made it a, a, an incredible amount of money for some people, certainly. But I, I would hope that there's an opportunity um, for us to really rethink writ large, I guess just how we do this. You know, um, Andre Agassi's Open is is a book that I th I think really um, is worthy of the praise that it gets, um, and has little wonderful nuggets in it. And one of them is where um, Agassi says that you know, professional tennis is a sport that chases the sun, and that's obviously why the tour now is is set up the way that it that it is, you know, it goes from the summer in Australia to late summer uh, in New York. And when it needs to go indoors, it goes indoors. And the, the circuit really is a, a love song to, I guess, that that movement of um, Helios with the sun on his chariot. Um, but yeah, 
I, I, I think that it's a good chance to rethink things. And do I think that will happen, Finn? Not too much, um, but I hope it does. Of course, in the circuit, one of the main tournaments you kick off with is the Holman Cup and Federer doing yeah. the robot the night before uh, the night before the Holman Cup and that, that no longer exists does it that event which is a I always thought was a really great event um, and seemed like an opportunity missed but and hopefully events like that might come back and it was a good example well, of the tours coming like together any event where the men's tour and women's tour together are just better Much I think better. tennis is better for it it's just better yeah um, and so, you know, it, it's, you know, Federer tweeted this um, uh, as a question, but it's, it's a question that's begged itself for, for a very long time. I mean, wouldn't tennis be better if there was one tour with the men and women on it? I honestly, um, I should tell you, I wanted to write the circuit about both tours. And you can see kind of in, for instance, Indian Wells and with the Hotman Cup and with the Australian Open, right? There's this sense of wanting to tell that story. But in, in mapping out the book, it just becomes impossible because, you know, it, it's like a double helix and where it meets and where it diverges. But really after Wimbledon, with, with a, a few exceptions, it's, it's just impossible to do. I feel like we should, um, or I should write the kind of negative uh, slant I've had on some of my questions because on the other hand, some players during this time, and I'm thinking particularly about Nomi Osaka's essay in the Esquire, um, where she said... Um, I haven't really had the time to pause and reflect. And now she was taking the time because she was off the circuit to think sure. about race and think about uh, rights in America. And yeah. And to read, she was very public about like the books that she's reading, you know, yeah. Fanon and all of that. And good for her in that sense, right? It's probably why I love Warinka as well, because Warinka will never, you know, Warinka will often have a book in his hand when you see him or, or when he kind of puts up images of himself. And it's good too you know, be a reader and think about the world. Yeah. And I guess just to go back to what you were saying about some of these tennis players who do have a strong sense of individuality, like Serena, like Venus, like Andrea Petkovic in a, in a different way. Um, some players have really kind of um, grown into a social role, haven't they? Like Osaka, like Coco Goff. So I just wondered your thoughts on that, because although, I don't know, tennis seems to lack that, sense of collective action and that that sense of itself as a bubble still prevails and i guess that was what the circuit was trying to burst in a way well yeah you know i'm i'm quite excited by it i'm 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 saddened by the context by which we're seeing it flourish but um i'm quite excited by it you know the development of a tennis player involves kind of like shutting yourself off from the world you know um often leaving school at a young age for homeschooling and you know, doing junior tours and such like that. And it's, um, it's very easy to end up on the hamster wheel, if you will, you know, even with um, Coco Goff. I mean, I, I was really uncomfortable by um, how we were so quick to revisit the narrative beginning last year of, you know, the precocious young player, you know, who's kind of giving it all and who's the next great thing who's going to eat up the world and, you know, hardly any pause in the commentary in offering this up once again, and you know, feeding possibly another youth to the lions. Um, and to see kind of like the, the thoughtfulness um, that's come out of this pause, I, you know, I would, I would hope that it's a type of um, not just a rebellion, but a refusal 
um, you know, Naomi Osaka has been really great um, in this sense, in that, um, you know, she didn't let her first uh, U.S. Open title um, and the the cloud of all of all of that happened with um, the chair empire and Serena define her, nor has she let, you know, being kind of the quirky, kooky player with the with the big strokes on both sides define her. Um, you know, there are always these roles that are that are waiting for, particularly a tennis player, because it's one on one, the participant with the audience. Um, you know, with the commentators, if you're watching on television, kind of chaperoning that relationship, if you will. And it's been really exciting to see these young players um, offer more than that. And what I'd love to see, and, and I think you will see, Finn, and you're already beginning to see is um, um, as the ball starts bouncing again, um, a refusal to just to reoccupy these roles. Um, that are waiting for them. You know, hopefully, you know, you don't have, you won't have commentators post-match asking a player to twirl in their dress because it's so pretty, um, like happened with uh, Jeannie Bouchard. And, um, you know, it, I just I just hope that there's more of it waiting, that individuality in tennis comes not just in uh, gameplay, and you see less and less kind of individuality in players' games. There are obviously exceptions to that, like Ashley Bart, who has quite a uh, distinctive uh, idiosyncratic game. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm all for it. More of that would be great. And I hope that for the young players who are coming up now, that this is more of a... Um, I guess more of uh, an example of how one can be, that one can be full of possibility and, and change and doesn't have to kind of fit into a role because, you know, as you know, I, we could both start naming players that um, one would not be familiar with on the tour now, but, you know, when they were 16, 15, 17, they had quite a good run at one tournament or another. Um, and you're supposed to hear so much of them. I mean, you you can think of some names from Wimbledon. I could think of some names from the U.S. Open, certainly. You know, and now they're you know in the qualifying setting. You hope for more for that for 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 players. It's a brutal sport, both physically and mentally. And I'm grateful that you see some of the players who the world's had their eyes on um, offering more than um, kind of platitudes and corporate sponsorship. And that's great. And I wanted to just dwell for a moment on, in terms of the circuit, how did you read tennis during that year? What was it kind of all about for you, the game? Was it about individuality and the kind of the throes of fate? Because that's something that comes up quite a lot as well. Yeah, you know, I really um, existed match to match, tournament to tournament, which is also the way that I write Finn. I'm very kind of like... Um, you know, sentence by sentence, clause by clause, word by word, syllable by syllable. And, and I figured that if you, if you really live with um, every tournament over the year, um, that these stories will, um, I guess they'll rise to the surface. Um, you know, the speaking of the uh, Iliad, as I did earlier, you know, this is a book that uh, arose out of um, great personal injury for myself. I torn my Achilles tendon, um, um, which is a terrible injury I, I would not wish on anyone. 
Um, and so I was, I was bedridden for a, a long stretch of time and I really couldn't do anything. Um, and so I did what um, I love to do, which is watch uh, tennis, but I was um, very, I was very kind of like in a oxycodone haze, a required by my surgeon and um, watching, uh, you know, a number of matches and watching them twice and watching them three times, going back over tournaments. And what I found myself doing was um, just kind of like taking note of how players um, dealt with their second opportunities and third opportunities. So, you know, for instance, um, at, at Brisbane at the start of 2017, you had um, Dogolopov, right, who was a player who was, um, things weren't going very well for him. Um, you know, he'd lost his uh, sponsorship, you could tell, because his string didn't have any stencils on it. Um, and he was in a poor run of form. Um, and then when you get to the, um, you know, Asian swing at the back end, he's in great form or, um, you know, seeing what had happened to um, David Goffin, who's a player that I like quite a bit, uh, who uh, had a really bad injury at the French Open, but then to see him kind of uh, come back and be a finalist at the uh, ATP tour in London, things like that. It was really just one of these things where if you um, watch as many matches as you can, um, and you see these kind of conversations that players are having with the sport itself and how they're trying to problem solve. Um, you know, tennis is a form of kinetic problem solving, as I say in the book. Um, and you're trying to solve a, a point, a match, but also an opponent who you'll see at some point again down the line. It, it's, it's an incredibly narrative sport. Um, and I thought that going um, blow by blow, um, with many matches um, across the globe, you'd really have this wonderful, almost kind of like um, Dumasian adventure uh, about uh, revenge and redemption and finding yourself um, amongst these forces that are greater than yourself. Some of them just simply being gravity and physics, some of them being, you know, late capitalism. Um, and uh, popularity and how some people can affect the crowd and some people can't and how some people can shrug that off and some people can't. Novak Djokovic won a match yesterday um, with no one in the stands and after did his, that thing that he does, mm -hmm. it's bizarre. Uh, I'd, I'd like to know what Kyrgios was thinking watching that. <laughs> he hated it when there was fans there. I don't know what he thinks of it when well, fans he didn't there. say. I mean, I mean, I think it was yesterday that he had tweeted that. Um, yeah. It's so strange now that we, we we talk about what what players tweet and the sex like that. It's still strange. <laughs> but you know, he said, you know, great player can't take that away from him. But he's he's someone who lacks leadership and humility. Um, and in a way, he's also saying. Well, I think Kyrgios is, is implying that that's Djokovic's job and not Kyrgios's job, right? Kyrgios has renounced, <laughs> renounced uh, uh, much of that. Though I do think that there is humility in Kyrgios and that that's misunderstood. Um, it just doesn't come out in a way that we read as humility. But yeah, so the idea of writing the book was trusting the process. I'm a big trust the process writer. Um, and I felt that if you, if you um, do that, you'll remember when you're in, um, I guess when you're in Newport, Rhode Island, you might go like, oh wait, these players met in Marseille 
indoors earlier in the year. Let's see what happens here. And it adds something to the narrative. Um, obviously, you know, not everyone can just follow every match and every tournament over a year. But, um, you know, I put myself to the task. It's something that I would do more or less anyway. But really kind of if you lean in uh, to that type of tapestry, that the, the edge of your observable universe, uh, it starts with the Hopman Cup and it takes you through to the last points in London. Um, and what type of story do you get? Um, and this was the story that came of it. I mean, it was also quite a, a, um, unique year. It was the, you know, January, 2017 was, um, the beginning of the Trump administration and, you know, kind of, you know, uh, the UK was in the midst of full on Brexit and kind of like absorbing that as a reality, something that, um, now will happen. Um, you know, the French elections were taking place just around the time of the, the French Open. And, um, you know, it was, it was a time and still is a time to think about the way in which the world is changing in irrevocable ways. Um, and the combination of those two things, paying loving attention to the great sport of tennis, but also keeping your eye on the context of the changing world and the global pressures that were going on. The Women's March, which was taking place in the midst of the U.S. Open, and I'm sorry, the U.S. Open, the Australian Open, and the fact that Nadal and Federer played that final in the 2017 Australian Open, the same time that the airport protests around the world were taking place due to the uh, immigration ban and the travel ban. And those were happening on the same day. It was was, um, too much to pass up and... Um, you know, it ended up being a story that I was really um, proud of. And I like that as much as one wants to focus in on the tennis or focus, pull back and see the world um, at large throbbing around it, that one can do that. And in that sense, it's a book for many types of uh, readers. My, you know, my wife who's a much better artist and reader than I am, just finished War and Peace. And now we're going to settle in and watch the Abundar Shack. Um, 1966 um, series and we we're kind of like watching how it was made and everything in this kind of epic scope and the way in which it can kind of pan in and out and um, I don't want to say that I've written something quite of that magnitude um, but I, I certainly would like to say that tennis has that type of grandeur to it and that type of epic sweep um, and what I love now is that players you mentioned um, a number of them are really taking on the challenge of not being automatons that it's a great it's a great story with a lot of heft and 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 uh, epic narrative and and kind of ethical implications to it all. And I love to see people being cognizant of that and throwing themselves into the mix of that because that was certainly the story that I was telling. How is that epic sweep and that story? Kind of the order of it, mm. so to speak, changed in your mind with the passage of time. Yeah. Well, because the tour is so different now. I mean, you're not going to have, you know, when Federer and Nadal played in the uh, Australian Open final, there was a sense of kind of like, well, this isn't going to happen again. We thought this was never going to happen again. Let's all watch because this isn't going to happen again. And then they ended up playing how many times over the course of that year, right? Yeah. Um, And then another three times in 2019. That's right. Again. Right. Yeah. So there are ways in which... um, uh, you know, the surprise also and, and the disappointment that, um, you know, the next generation still hasn't caught up. Dimitrov had a great um, year. He was ranked, I think, 44 um, at the end of 2016 and had a great 2017, but he's still kind of where he is. You know, 
Um, Sasha Zarev, who's, you know, a player with strengths and many, many weaknesses that are more obvious, I think, than ever now, still hasn't put everything together in a way that, you know, there was in 2017, the sense that we were watching potentially a, a changing of the guard. Um, but, you know, a number of players are still kind of the same. And so Roger Federer is 39 and still going to play in a number of um, finals if he's fit. Um, because, you know, the players who are coming up, and now there are two generations, right? There was that um, Monfi, still love Monfi, but, you know, uh, you know Monfi and Dimitrov and, all, you know, all of those players that were supposed to be that next generation. And now there's this generation behind them with team and Zerev and such like that. And they've all kind of become one generation that's kind of like bubbling beneath the surface. Um, but, you know, none of them have really been able to um, uh, take Achilles' armor yet, if you will. Um, and in that way, the, the tour is different, that there's not this kind of sense of expectation now. There's been kind of a settling into, um, well, this is, the, at least on the men's tour, like this is the level um, of competition that we have, and this is what we'll have until um, Djokovic and Federer and Nadal basically uh, hang it up, which is a little disappointing um, because you'd like to see someone kind of take the racket from their hands. We've kind of grown up with those types of narratives, right? Where, well, we saw Federer take the racket from Sampras, basically, um, and we're waiting for somebody to take the racket from Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, but they're, it seems like they're going to put down the racket when they're ready. Um, and in that way, I think that is really amazing what's happening now because it, it seems as though this global pandemic is more what's the great challenge to them and the great uh, game changer in tennis, at least in the men's circuit. I mean, the, the women's circuit has, has had great eruptions, uh, Osaka being one of them and now Coco Gauff. Um, but yeah, in the men's tour, there, there's, I think this um, settling thus far, unfortunately, um, which makes the book, I think, even more unique because it, it really captures a moment of possibility um, that has not been answered. And, and so in a way, I think that the 2017 season is a um, kind of like golden reflection of a golden era, but not a moment of transition on the court um, as much as um, off the court in that what's happening now is certainly tied into what we were seeing in the start of the 2017 year. Yeah, yeah, it's so weird, isn't it, that, that things haven't, on the men's tour, haven't really changed weirdly since 2017 still. No, you just have, you know, Nishikori has been replaced by, you know, um, Medvedev, you know what I mean? You've just kind of yeah. like replaced yeah. certain players. Tsitsipas is now kind of, um, you know, bring the lights, the right? Role. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of more of a, yeah. more of a willingness to go up to the net, but... Um, and this is why, honestly, you know, I have a, I have a weak spot for Stan Varenka. He's, he's, a, he's a player that's kind of like impacted the legacy of this generation of tennis more than he's been given credit for. Um, man, he was the great, I think the great ace up the sleeve of the men's tour um, over the past five years or so. And we should be grateful for, uh, for that. And I, and I think that his highs and lows are also very much kind of like in the poet's spirit. He's, he's much less of a um, bankable quality, I guess. Uh, and I love that. I love that um, about him. 
but also, you know, we're, there are moments in 2017 that I, I don't think really get the due they, they deserve, such as, for instance, we talk a lot about the Federer-Nadal final, as we should, in, in Australia, at least. Um, the other ones didn't hold a candle to that match. And of course, we talk about Federer-Curios in Key uh, Biscayne, but the U.S. Open, uh, I think it was the quarterfinal between Venus and, um, and Petra was just an incredibly, I mean, that was as good a match as I've seen for years. And certainly it's hard to beat that. Yes, Part of the reason yes. why I wrote this book is so that we don't lose sight of um, some incredible matches that kind of get lost unless you kind of uh, geek out on YouTube. Um, like I do with some old matches, you know, like um, Serena and Celis in Toronto, I think it was in 2001, things like that. I still kind of love catching matches like that. So part of the reason why I love the book, um, and I had a feeling when I wrote it, fan I had to say was that it's a book that you, you so eloquently put that it, it's also about time, but it's also a book that changes and I think strengthens as time passes. So it's one thing if you read it in 2018. It's another thing if you read it in 2019. It's another thing when you read it now. And it's going to be something else when you read it 10 years from now um, in 2028. But what that year was and the possibility of it, right? Who was number one in the world at the start of the 2017 season? Andy Murray, right? Um, but what did he do to his body to get there? But the story of 2017, as it started, was supposed to be, you know, a new here now is what tennis, men's tennis will be going forward. Djokovic versus Murray, one versus two. And we'll still kind of appreciate Rafa and Roger as they're around on the tour, but this is where we're going. And then, yeah. And then, so. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess my other question for you is, will the 2021 Australian Open if it is played, be played with against the backdrop of a Joe Biden inauguration rather than a the uncertainty of another Donald Trump um well it wouldn't be an inauguration, would it? Taking office again. Well the scary thing is Finn, we don't know. Yeah. And the the kind of vagaries and idiosyncrasies of the um, electoral college voting system leaves us to ah, not know, you know, one hopes that there's change. And certainly, I don't think that um, America or the world can really do as well as it possibly can, you know, under the current um, lack of leadership and vision and misanthropy that uh, we currently see taking place. Um, and I think that a new administration would offer a wonderful kind of like allegory and narrative of hope and possibility. And you'd love to see that the tennis also would. Uh, I mean, the two things in this situation um, aren't immediately related, but you would hope that also kind of like the tennis and the narratives and sense of hope going forward would also have some type of um, sense of change as well. I guess in what we've been talking about, Finn, you can see, I think we both have a um, um, healthy skepticism towards um, stolidness, uh, you know, and the way in which we relate to uh, each other and our differences, uh, our need to take care of each other and our need to um, 
lower boundaries and, and break down walls is, has been met by a type of reactionary conservative um, stolidness and misanthropy. Um, and that's not, that's not a way forward. Um, it's pretty clear that the world is changing in the way that tennis also is changing and, um, you know, change and openness is good. What's great about tennis at its best is that we have people from all over the world playing it, watching it. And, you know, unfortunately there are, there are parts of the world where tennis doesn't, um, the tour doesn't come to as much, um, sub-Saharan Africa, um, the Caribbean in particular, um, but people nevertheless are playing it there. And if you wait long enough, so you, for instance, Finn, you can sit tight and know in, in, in a normal year where there's not a pandemic that the tour will come your way, um, you know, and, you know, whether you're going to go to Queens or kind of try to go to Wimbledon, um, you know, or whether you're going to kind of like go down to the continent and kind of catch a match in Barcelona because you'd like to see some clay, you know, that there, there are different relationships that you can have um, with the sport because at its best, it crosses boundaries and, and, it, and it brings joy to you, you know. Joy for me would be, um, you know, a healthy world with a with a working and scientifically vetted vaccine and sport going on in a healthy way and tennis having rethought some of its relationships to conflicts of interest and power and wellness, mental wellness and physical wellness and how the top and bottom share the spoils and that we go forward in 2020 with a, a renewed vigor and a kind of like a, a sense that tennis is part of the world, not cut off from the world and that, you know, it's something that makes us better in that sense, enjoying it its relationship to this crazy world would that we you, live in. Would you hope to write a second book about <laughs> tennis that would hopefully reflect that, that you know world? What? I've been asked that quite a bit, you know, would you do a circuit too? Would you do another circuit? Would you uh, write about the women's tour? And um, I think it's a one and done. I think it's a one and done, not for lack of interest. Um, you know, I've been asked also to write some pieces that I'm contemplating now for some good, for some good magazines. But um, I think that the, I think that the best I can do for the book that I wrote is to let it, let it be, um, and enjoy conversations like this. If I didn't write this book, we wouldn't have had this conversation. We wouldn't be having this conversation. And, um, that to me is what's, um, wonderful about it. But I think that the book in the long term, and, you know, I always think about the long game, uh, the long game is the only game. And, you know, I play, um, mostly on clay and it's also a, it's also a surface where you should really point by point think about the long game, but I think that the book will be better served by this being a, a one and done. But hopefully it will find, a, you know, the book has yet to be, um, the book has yet to be translated and, you know, it, it has yet to be published in the UK. And, you know, I, I would think that as time passes, it's more and more of a story that uh, people would like to, around the world would like to think about and looking back on how the tour was and how the world was. And if that happens and it kind of reinvigorates this sense of the story and people's relationship to it, that would be to me the great value in the book, not writing another one. Sure. And I realize we're 
I've I've kept you long enough, but I just wanted to I'm ask happy you. To talk with you. It's my pleasure, actually. You're quite one. Oh, wonderful. Great. Well, great. Well, I wanted to ask you about. There's a kind of a sad parallel, but a parallel the same with the 2017 US Open and this one. Uh, you talk about the 2017 US Open as having a depleted field, uh, and it's kind of Homeric in that sense. The kind of the fallen that have come before it, and I mean this tournament is going to be quite similar. It's not going to have Nadal or Federer. It's not going to have Halep and Barty. But I guess Nadal and Federer is the striking one, isn't it? Because the US Open has been the slam that's wanted that Federer-Nadal match so badly as well, right? So, I don't know, I just wanted to ask what your feelings about this year's tournament are. Right. Uh, I guess we've kind of touched already on your feelings about tennis coming back. Um, but also, thinking ahead about tennis without those two men and without Serena Williams, which is going to happen in a, in a couple of years' time, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's... Um, I think the US Open could use a, a, a major rethink. The USTA would be... Um, would be good for them to kind of rethink a number of things about, um, about that tournament. Um, but it makes a lot of money. And so here we are. You know, there's always something that's kind of um, beautiful and sad about the U.S. Open. I mean, what's beautiful about it is tennis in New York. And, you know, New York is a um, complicated place to play tennis, which makes all the people who kind of like really put in the effort to do it. Um, it shows the love that the city has for it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a born and raised New Yorker. Um, but also, you know, today's my mother's birthday. And uh, typically around this time is uh, when the U.S. Open starts. So, you know, we have a tradition of going to uh, the first day of the of the opening um you know going from the different side courts and uh taking it all in and you know that's been a, a wonderful thing that i've tended to do with uh my family and my folks and obviously we can't do that this year but i i i don't you know i won't begrudge um players who opt to compete um their option to compete and not just make a living but you know do what they've trained their lives to do, just play tennis and uh, the results will be what they are. But I just, you really wish that there were organizations that could kind of like look at themselves and say, it's, it's time to take a time out and take a deep breath and, you know, think about what, what we're doing here and, and, and the good of it all. And I know that there are people that are going to disagree and have a number of reasons to disagree, but it's going to be a strange Grand Slam. Also, because honestly, you know, part of what's difficult about the U.S. Open, I have to say, um, part of what's difficult about the U.S. Open, and it's what kind of I lay out in the circuit, is that it's the last Grand Slam, you know, as we reach the the back end of a very taxing tour, which, you know, we've switched surfaces and traveled around continents. And and, and in that sense, it's, a, it's also a sense of endurance. You're playing in sweltering um, weeks of August um, and in a really difficult, often um, environment. You know, you know, Arthur Ashe Stadium is a very complicated place to play. It's cavernous um, and it is not by any means quiet. And especially at night when the I've been there at night when the um, roof is closed um, and the just chitter chatter and run run is, is, is um, unbelievable. Um, it's also it's a crowd like none other. Um, 
And, you know, whether it was in the old days when the US Open used to be in Forest Hills to when they used to um, have big matches on um, Louis Armstrong Stadium, is just the way in which the US Open without a crowd is a very, 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 very strange thing. Um, and it makes me sad. And just, it, it also reminds me of everything that has happened, not just in uh, New York, but in communities around the world. But of course, you know, New York was the global epicenter of this pandemic for so long. And I wish that there were more humane ways to think about tennis's relationship to, to the city than just kind of like playing it in a bubble and hope everyone behaves. And I, and I just say that also because, you know, um, having grown up in New York, it's just, it's a, it's a difficult place to play. Um, it's, it's hard to find court time and, um, you know, courts are expensive and you often have to travel uh, great distances to find the right uh, court. And, um, you know, your time is limited and a lot of, you know, over the summer courts are open at five thirty, six in the morning and people are on them. Um, and and there's there's a way in which I, I wish that there was a a better way to have um, that Grand Slam happen, but you know, it is what it is with the U.S. Open, and you wish for more, but you you find the people they're doing what they think is the best they can do. I don't know. There's just always been something about the connective tissue of the U.S. Open, which I think is it's great. The crowd. And it's connective tissue, kind of like, you know, now we're really in the, down the stretch they come. Now we're really at the back end and seeing how people kind of mentally and physically um, deal with that um, and with the uniqueness of the New York atmosphere. Having those things removed makes it kind of uh, more of a financial enterprise, um, even than it's been known to be before. Um, it's kind of like the curtain's been raised and you can see all the gears and everything like that. And it depresses me. I guess you can even hear it in the tone of my voice. I'm just, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just. No, I feel you. I feel you. I, I think there's a, there's a sense of, I think what I found quite weird is there's, there's this sense that tennis could be for the next year. What Cincinnati is, is just in not actually in Cincinnati and you mentioned this in the book Miami is not actually in Miami but Cincinnati of course has just been in New York right. not actually in Ohio uh, it, that could actually happen for a lot of tournaments now you just change the the boards on the back right. <laughs> and say you're in a different place but you're actually in the same place you're just in this this bubble or whatever yeah you you know we've kind of uh Trojan horse in this kind of uh, new reality that's so close to something that we see in dystopic fiction and film where you're someplace but you're not there. The Miami Open now is in Miami or at least it had that one uh, year where it played in my, Miami Gardens but yeah, you know, the whole idea of um, selling these selling these locations I guess, um, pun intended is is weird it's, it's very weird um, and I think that tennis as often is the case, whether it's issues of segregation, gender difference, uh, chauvinism, globalism, celebrity, child labor and wages, leadership, right? Unionization. Tennis is so deeply involved with all of these things, um, but it also has this wonderful way or has had this wonderful way of letting you not really pay attention to any of those things if you don't want to, because it's such a beautiful tactile sport. 
um, that you can kind of really watch and lean in and feel like you're, you're leaning in with the players and having this relationship with them. I mean, look no further than the devote fandom of, um, some of the best players in the world. Um, but all of that is, is, is there, um, and has been for as long as I can remember. I mean, the, the, um, Renshaw brothers, the, the twins who were Wimbledon champions, William winning it seven times in the 1880s, you know, they were kind of the, the first um, superstars who advertised their own shoe, had their own shoe named after them, as I mentioned in the circuit. Uh, tennis is, from its, from its beginnings as an um, amateurish endeavor, um, has been really on the pulse of all of these types of um, social issues and um, it hasn't always um, been very good at articulating them to the general populace, fashion being another one. Um, but there's a way in which, you know, once again, if you uh, tune in and watch, you'll see a lot of what's going on and what we need to, what we need to address. It's very weird. And, you know, I didn't anticipate, you know, you put it, I, I didn't think about it this way, but it's true that the 2020 uh, U.S. Open is like the 19, the 2017 U.S. Open um, in the sense that you have this really winnowed down field and kind of a decaffeinated, um, I don't know, lead up to the final. Um, and you're certainly going to have an attempt to compile some more numbers by certain players. And it is what it is, but I, I wish I could sound more excited about it, but I'm just not very excited uh, it, especially because I have to say, you know, what I love about the French Open and Wimbledon and, and even the Australian Open, even though it is a hard court as well, is just that this, there's this kind of like visual um, glory to them that I, I don't think that the US Open, when you're watching it on uh, TV, has there's certain moments you know the Armstrong courts if you'd watch those um, those matches particularly in the women's uh, tour uh, the semifinals and finals or the the Forest Hills matches you'd certainly get this sense of a, a wonderful spectacle of being in New York and the crowd being there but you know I fear we're going to have so many matches now that just seem so kind of like antiseptic and it's kind of like a hardcore match that could take place as you put it anywhere. I think part of the reason why people um, aren't so um, life and death with um, certain indoor tournaments on the, on the continent at the beginning of the year and the back end of the year is that they, they seem so they could be happening anywhere, right? So you're in Luxembourg, you're in, you're in France, um, you know, you're in, you know, uh, Switzerland, but there's a sense of where are we really? And like you said, I think a lot of that's coming and it's a, it's a shame. We'll see how much environment really is um, part of what makes, you know, seeing the game so wonderful. What do you think? What do you, what do you, what do you? <laughs> well, is, is, <laughs> I just asked the questions, right? <laughs> well, I mean, well, what is, you know, as you read the book, you're someone who, you know, I mean, would you go to matches? Do you watch a lot of matches i mean what, what what's being taken from you and, and what do you feel like you still have now going forward yeah i mean i've never had the privilege to go um and watch tennis outside of the uk but like you say i've also had the privilege of being able to go down to london or to eastbourne and watch a watch a match because it's there for me and i went to the world tour finals in last year and watched federer and Djokovic, and that was amazing and i i, I feel like 
with tennis as with football as well this just behind closed doors bubble environment that it's going to be played in is just another step away from the sport I thought I knew in the sport that we all seem to play it seems to be like professional tennis is a completely different sport to the tennis you and I play at the park or whatever I think that's incredibly sad I think that's what's maybe being lost and it is it's funny how quickly we go back to talking about the things the trivial things in sport as well I mean maybe trivial is the wrong word but like you say tennis is a very good way of uh, of distracting us from important things that it addresses and at the same time doesn't really address at all uh, it's funny how quickly we start talking about Kyrgios's antics or um, Coco Goff's backhand or whatever I don't know I don't know and I, I feel a bit weird about that like you I think right. football transfers that's been yeah. my you know I'm a, I'm a card carrying member of football club Barcelona and there are lots of things that are on my mind now regarding that club but you know you, you know I have some people kind of pop in and ask me about like oh what do you think is Griezmann's natural position or where and I'm just kind of I'm not yeah you know the same with tennis there's, there's just kind of there's a complicity I feel um, and maybe Luisa articulated this better but I, I do feel like there's a complicity um, in just kind of like carrying on, right? Let's just kind of like talk about this like it's normal. It is not normal. This is sport in the midst of a pandemic um, and a pandemic where um, the, the, the results of, I mean, when we talk about casualties, you know, this is not, when, when anyone dies from COVID, they die an isolated, horrible death. And there's a way in which, you know, um, I think that it's important for that to be front and center of everyone's mind when they think that, oh, well, professional athlete, he's got it. It'll just like sit for two weeks in quarantine and then he'll be right back in it. Um, but, you know, that's not the way. Of, you can't just talk away a virus or, or its, um, its effects, uh, which are catastrophic. Um, and so, you know, yeah, you know, there's football on and I've watched it, but um, there's certain things that I, I guess I... I, I am opting out of, if you will. And, it, and it's this kind yeah, of life yeah. carrying on. I'm really excited that Leeds is back. I'm not paying attention to who they're signing. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's yeah, one of sure, those, sure. it's one of those things. And, and, and I think, um, I can't speak for others, but I, I do, I do a lot of my work on myself. And I think that part of what's important for me is to opt out of certain ways of behaving. And I think that you articulated it really well to know that this is weird. This is not normal. This is sad. And I know we have coping mechanisms. So people, some people will carry on because they desperately need that. They desperately need to know what's going to happen with Harry Maguire or is City going to sign Messi or, you know, is Djokovic, is Djokovic going to win the US Open and are they going to put an asterisk besides that? And then yeah. Is it, yeah, is he going to become the GOAT because yeah. he won this tainted US Open? Yeah. yeah. It's book Finn is really the way that I think about the sport. And if we had known each other that season, I would have been I would have been mentioning um I would have been mentioning kind of like a match in Rio that I saw that I really liked or the, the way that Karina Busta looked really good, you know, um, at a certain part of the swing and 
you know, or how Tiafo's backswing is strange and kind of like changes every time you see him play. Um, I, I'm really interested in the micro aspects of the game. And I love the way in which in following those, you also kind of see the bigger picture um, some, some ways. But um, I only feel really comfortable doing those things when, I don't know, there's a context to really enjoy that type of stuff. And I can't say I'm enjoying um, the idea of tennis that much right now. But I'm out and I'm, and I'm playing, and, and that's a certain effervescence that I'm grateful for, and that it's a low-impact sport in terms of um, exposure to COVID. But that's very different from, you know, being a professional and being on the tour and all of these things, obviously. So I should ask Rowan before you go, um, what's next for you? Uh, well, you know, I have my mind on um, Living Weapon coming out in uh, with Faber and in the UK in January. And, um, you know, as a, as a poet, always first and foremost, I, you know, I grew up with Faber titles and, and uh, poets that, that have been published there. And I'm really honored and excited to be a part of that. Um, but also, um, you know, I'm working on some projects, one being a book on Black poetry that I'm rewriting. I'm doing a new version of for um, my U.S. publisher, First Grouse and Giroux. You know, I've written a screenplay based on a wonderful biography of the great Puerto Rican baseball player, uh, Roberto Clemente, that's kind of in pre-production. And um, if you saw the wonderful Oscar-winning documentary O.J. Made in America, um, Ezra Edelman, who um, put that together, was scheduled to direct that, and I'm excited by that. And hopefully that can um, go forward. It's a, it's a wonderful project I was proud to write. And now I'm working on another screenplay um, for an adaptation of a, of a Pulitzer-winning book that I don't think I could talk about at the moment because everything hasn't been signed away. Um, a magazine has asked me to write on the U.S. Open I'm still thinking about whether I want to do that. Uh, you can kind of tell. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, as you'll see, you know, there, there are things where you, yeah, you think about, you can think about whether or not you want to do them or not. And I'm thinking about whether I want to do that. Um, I'm working on a piece for the New York Times magazine on the baseball season during um, this pandemic. Right now I'm kind of um, doing some reporting, but it's also an essay. And I just finished uh, an essay on life in this pandemic for Virginia Quarterly Review, which is going to be out uh, pretty soon. Um, and other than that, you know, thinking about writing poems as always and um, starting to sketch out a novel. It sounds like a lot of things, but it's... It's a lot of things. It's a hell of a lot of things. Yeah, you're using, you're using the time well. You're reflecting and, and using the time to be creative, I guess, aren't you? It sounds like. Well, it's what we're here for. And, you know, I, um, I don't sleep as much as I'd like to, but um, I do a lot, of, a lot of the work. You know, action is the only testament to moral behavior. And um, I love to write and I love being connected to, you know, writing that book has led to this wonderful conversation. Like I said earlier, um, we would not have met if not for that. And I want to congratulate you on your graduation. And it's... Um, you know, I think so much about um, young readers and writers like you who've kind of gone through, you know, crossed this threshold through this historic moment. It will mark you forever as part of a generation um, that's like none other. Um, 
and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, the world and the powers that be and those that are older than you didn't, um, weren't able to make this a, a smoother transition for you into the world. Um, but the world's still waiting for you to kind of like, um, shape it in a righteous image and, you know, talking to you about sport and the world really Finn has given me a lot of hope that the future, those who are the class of 21 and beyond are going to, um, have a say in making this world both in sport and in pleasure and in socially and politically um, stronger and more humane than we find it in now. I'm, I'm the strangest type of New Yorker, Finn. I'm a devout optimist. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you, you're not, you're not a, uh, you don't go by the it is what it is mantra that you mentioned in the book. Well, yeah, you, you know, it's funny <laughs> because, you know, you, you have that, but it is what it is. And then there's a but, you know. But, you know, you, you hope that I write poems and I don't worry about um, how they're reviewed. Um, I, I always, you know, you write and the poets of the future will make sense of it. You write a book on tennis and the tennis lovers and readers of the future will um, make sense of it. So it is what it is. But, you know, they're the Finns of the world and uh, Delilah's of the world and, you know, whomever comes next and they'll you know, I'm enthused by the idea that they'll make sense of it and hopefully they want what I write to be a part of their future. Well, I'm incredibly thankful we've been able to have this conversation, Rowan. I really do appreciate it and I hope you stay safe and well for the, the, the coming months. It's just been a pleasure. No, the pleasure's really been mine. Um, I'm so um, thrilled that, you know, you're doing this podcast. You really kind of like have this wonderful um, venue going on. I wish you and it all the best. And, you know, I hope that uh, the world's in a better place so that one living weapon um, is out in the UK with favor that I'm no longer locked into the US and I can come thereabouts. And, you know, I hope that we have the opportunity at some point when all is well to uh, meet person to person or maybe even have a hit at some point. Yes, I'd be very much up for that. As long as it's not on clay, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty terrible on clay. <laughs> we'll find, that sounds good we'll find a good service. You know, the funny thing is here, I'm playing on hard court, which I, I really um, had not been doing as of late, but in Williamstown, the, the courts are hard court. And uh, I hit with a lot of top spin. And so my hitting partners are realizing they're getting a lot of balls up at their shoulders. And they're just like, sorry, I've just been so kind of like... You know, my strokes have been so hardwired to kind of like, you know, just hit with a lot of topspin. It is, it is. Uh, but it's been a real pleasure, Finn. Thanks for for um, loving the circuit and and for all your thoughtfulness. This conversation's really been a, a wonderful way for me to start the day. It's uh, 10.33 in the morning here in Williamstown. Um, I really love what you're doing and the way that you're thinking about uh, tennis. And, you know, you have a fan here in me and I'll be following your podcast and just, you know, the line of communication is open. And as the sun sets on another podcast, I should say thank you very much to Rowan for his time of such a far-reaching discussion. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple or Spotify if you haven't already. Catch us on the Grand Slam Tennis Online website, of course. And please leave us a review if you like the show. We'll be back this Saturday with a US Open preview, for better or for worse. So, yeah, keep an eye on the feed for that. Thanks very much for listening. Speak to you soon.